Father, we thank you, Lord, for another day that you've given us. We thank you that we can get together, that we can open up your word and learn from you and grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. And Lord, I just pray that you would help us to see you, to worship you, to glorify you, to have humble hearts before you, Lord, that we would put aside anything in our life, Lord, that's hindering us from seeing you today. I pray that you would forgive us of our sins that you would cleanse us from all unrighteousness, Lord, that you would unite us in the faith and grow us strong, Lord, in you, and that you would just be with us this morning, that you would comfort our hearts, that you would lift any heavy hearts, that you would remove any burdens, Lord, and that we would cast our cares upon you because you care for us. So be with us today, Lord. Speak to us through your word and bless us this day as we bless your name. In Jesus' name, amen. Title of today's teaching is Praising the God of Mercy. Praising the God of Mercy. And if anyone in the scripture knew mercy, it was David. Many of you guys know the story of David. We're taught, even from the time we were children, the story of David and Goliath. And David was this young shepherd boy tending the sheep. And God called him, handpicked him to shepherd the people of Israel, to lead the people of Israel. And yet we know that David had a huge fall. Yet up until that point, as the shepherd boy, this valiant warrior, the scripture tells us he was blameless. He was flawless. And the scripture tells us that he was a skillful musician, a mighty, mighty man of valor, a warrior, prudent in speech, a handsome man. And the Lord was with him. Now, when Goliath taunted the armies of the living God, young David courageously stood up and put an end to it and gave all credit to God. Here were these old men, these men of war who were shaking in their boots literally, and here's young David who walks right up and says, I will face the giant. Later, when King Saul tried to take David's life because of jealousy, David spared Saul's life on two separate occasions. Two separate occasions he could have wiped out King Saul. And King Saul continued to pursue him. And yet David proved himself to be a man of integrity, a righteous man and faithful to the Lord. Listen to what Saul said of King David prior to him being king. First Samuel 24, 17 said, you are more righteous than I, for you have dealt well with me while I have dealt wickedly with you. If you remember the story, David was in a cave with his men and Saul the text says, went into the cave to relieve himself, whatever that means in the Hebrew. Maybe he was going to take a nap. Maybe he was going to relieve himself. So David is in there and David's men say, God has given King Saul into your hand. King or David, it's time to wipe out King Saul. And what does David do? He takes off a piece piece of Saul's cloak. He cuts it off and he walks out of the cave and he gets some distance away. And then he cries out and says, look, Saul, Look what I have here. I could have taken your life. But you know what the text says? It says that David's conscience was bothering him. He goes, I can't believe that I actually took part of the king's robe off. He was so uh, flawless and blameless before the Lord that his conscience was defiled just because he took off part of his robe. And he said, far be it from me that I should do something like that to the king's, to God's anointed, to the king." So that's what kind of man David was. Yet years later, as the story goes, he drifted from the Lord. He suffered 
a massive fall. He coveted his neighbor's wife, and, and not just any neighbor. It was Uriah, one of his mighty men, one of his very own in his army. He coveted his neighbor's wife. He committed adultery. Then he had Uriah murdered. Yet God, in his great mercy, spared David's life. If anyone deserved the death penalty, it was King David. Yet God was gracious to him. God showed him mercy. One way to, de- to define God's mercy is God's compassion or forgiveness shown towards someone who it is within God's power to punish. God could have rightfully punished David, could have put him to death, yet he spared his life. But with that, the sword, it says, never left his household. He dealt with the consequences of his sin the rest of his life. Yet God spared him. So he knew the magnitude of his sin, which caused him to appreciate and cling to the mercy of God all the more. David said, Psalm 25:10, all the paths of the Lord are mercy and truth to such as keep his covenant and his testimonies. He states again in Psalm 86:15, but you, O Lord, are a God full of compassion and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in mercy and truth. And again in Psalm 145, 8 and 9, he says, the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and great in loving kindness. The Lord is good to all and his mercies are over all his works. Every breath that David took after his massive fall was a testimony of God's goodness in his life, a testimony of God's mercy. And every breath that we take and even being here this morning is a testimony of God's mercy. If we look back at our lives, If we look back at the sin and what we deserve for our sin, it should appreciate, cause us to appreciate God's mercy all the more. I love Lamentations 3, 22 and 23. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I want to walk through Psalm 103 today, particularly the first couple verses. If you want to turn there with me, Psalm 103, it's a psalm of David. We could have gone to Psalm 51, which is another psalm of mercy, as David literally cries out in the first couple verses for God's mercy in his life. But Psalm 103 is a beautiful text, and it could be divided into three parts. The first five verses, David's personal experience of God's mercy in his own life. Then verses 6 through 19, God's mercy and compassion towards his creation. And then the last part, verse 20 through 22, David's call to all God's creatures to bless the Lord. Now, I was hoping to go through the entire chapter, all 22 verses, and the more I looked at it, I just said, that's too much. I had a talk with Leah last night, and I was like, I don't know how I'm going to get through all of this in one teaching. And she said, well, why don't you just do a couple verses? And I said, okay, you're right. Why don't I do that? So, particularly just verses one through the first half of part uh, verse three, but let's go ahead and just read the whole Psalm through, and then we'll walk through the first couple verses and expound upon them a little bit. Psalm 103, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits, who pardons all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, 
who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion, who satisfies your years with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. The Lord performs righteous deeds and judgments for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the sons of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust. As for man, his days are like grass. As a flower of the field, so he flourishes. When the wind has passed over it, it is no more. And its place acknowledges it no longer. But the loving kindness of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and who remember his precepts to do them. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over all. Bless the Lord, you his angels, mighty in strength, who perform his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all you his hosts, you who serve him, doing his will. Bless the Lord, all you works of his, in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. The psalm begins with a plea to bless the Lord, and it ends with a plea to bless the Lord. What does it mean to bless the Lord? The Hebrew word is barak. It means to give thanks. It means to give adoration and praise. This Hebrew word barak can also be translated to kneel. Second Chronicles 6.13, Solomon kneels before the Lord, it says, raises his hands to heaven and prays to God. The Hebrew word for kneel there is barak. Psalm 95.6, come let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel barak before the Lord our God, our maker. You could say it means to, in your heart, in your soul, to kneel before the Lord in humble gratitude, to give thanks and praise. And it's as if David was struggling to do this. So he's pleading with his soul, bless the Lord, O my soul, all that is within me, bless his holy name. Not part of me, not some of my heart, not what's left over, but every part of my being. He says, all that is within me. In the NIV, it says, all of my inmost being, every part of my being, bless the Lord. That's his song. That's his prayer. The Benson Commentary puts it this way. Let all my thoughts and affections be engaged, united, and raised to the highest pitch in and for this work. So David exhorts himself. He's talking to his soul here. And we need to preach to ourselves as well. And we not only see that in this psalm, even Psalm 104, verse 1. He continues this plead. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty. Even Psalm 42, 5. Why are you in despair, O my soul? Why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him. 
for the help of his presence. You see this in several of the Psalms. The Psalmist crying out to the Lord, crying out to his soul, even preaching to himself, soul, why are you in despair? Why are you downcast? Hope in God, rejoice in God, bless God. Perhaps you've encountered that in your walk with the Lord. I've been battling that a little bit lately. Been at work. I talk about my job from time to time. Dealing with the rotten kids that I deal with at my job. Try not to talk about it too much. But the Lord's doing something through that, I believe. But at my job, I'm a substitute teacher at times. I'm watching preschoolers sometimes, sometimes fifth graders, sometimes seventh graders. Sometimes I'm grading papers. Depends on where they need me. I'm running around the school. But lately, they've been having me do a lot of yard duty. And so I basically I'm making sure the kids don't wrestle, punch each other, and hurt each other. And so I'm out there for an hour, hour and a half, walking around. I have time. As long as I'm not breaking up the kids, I have time. And I'm meditating on the Lord. I'm meditating on his word. I have verses that I'm trying to meditate on and memorize. 1 Corinthians 13 has been on my mind. I'm trying to get through. But I've been battling with my soul, just not wanting to do it. I'm like, I have an hour, hour and a half here. And I want to seek the Lord. I want to pray to him. And I'll realize 20, 30 minutes goes by and I'm kind of just thinking about other things in life, walking back and forth, thinking about bills, thinking about finances, thinking about my family, thinking about this and that. It's not bad in and of itself. But in my heart, in my soul, I want to use the time for the Lord. And as I was reading through this psalm, putting together this message, I felt the same battle that David, I think, was feeling here. And in Psalm 104 and Psalm 42, and perhaps you've been there before as well. That's why it says in Psalm 103:14, he himself knows our frame. He's mindful that we are but dust. He's patient with us. He knows we're feeble. He knows we're weak. He knows our temptations. He knows we can get in the flesh. So he's patient with us. Yet our plead and our playing with our soul should be soul, praise him, bless him, all that is within me. And so at times I just start singing and some of the kids come up to me and I'm like, because it's kind of hard because I want to reach these kids with the gospel and I don't really have an opportunity to just speak the gospel to them. And so I start singing and then they come up to me and ask me what I'm singing and then I can start explaining it to them and that's kind of my little loophole to share the gospel from time to time. So may the Lord help us to bless him with all that is within us. The treasury of David commentary states, let others murmur, but do thou bless. Let others bless themselves and their idols, but do thou bless the Lord. Let others use only their tongues, but as for me, I will cry, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Whatever is attacking our soul, whatever is diminishing our praise, or quenching our heart's desire to give thanks and adoration to the Lord, we must lay on the altar and bow before the holy name of God, realizing he's worthy of all our praise. Revelation 4.11 states, You are worthy, O Lord, and God to receive glory and honor and power, for you have created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. He's worthy to be blessed with all that is within us. So what's David's advice to his soul so that his soul will bless God with all that is within him? It's found at the end of verse two. Forget 
none of his benefits. And so he pleads with his soul from verses three through five, don't forget his benefits. Here they are. And he lists them out. And so we need to meditate on, it could also be translated kind deeds, his benefits or kind deeds to us. And we need to meditate on these deeds. We need to meditate on his word. We need to memorize it. We need to share it with one another. We need to sing it because our souls can forget God's goodness and his mercy in our lives. So what are the benefits that David lists in verses three through five? He pardons all our iniquities, heals all your diseases, redeems your life from the pit, crowns you with loving kindness and compassion, who satisfies your years with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. Why will your soul be in despair? Why will your soul not bless the Lord with all that's within it? Because you can forget these things listed in verses three through five. You can forget that God has pardoned all your sins. That's the most important point made, and David lists it first, and that's the point that he expounds upon throughout the rest of this psalm. It's the very definition of mercy, that God does not credit our sins to us. He does not reward us, as it says in verse 10, according to our iniquities. The wages of sin is death. That's what we deserve, death. Eternal torment, separation from God forever. He does not reward us in that way. Instead of giving us hell, he gives us heaven. Instead of punishing us, he allows us to rule and reign with him forever. Once our soul remembers these things, we can truly bless him with all that is within us. But we also must realize the depths and the magnitude and the weight of the sin in our lives to truly understand God's mercy. So David testifies in Psalm 25, 11, for your, namesake, for your namesake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. My iniquity is great. Would you pardon it? He was a criminal, coveter, idolater, thief, murderer, deserved damnation, wrath, destruction, forgiveness, did not deserve forgiveness, did not deserve healing or redemption or a crown or to be satisfied with the good things of the Lord. Yet that is what God granted him and that's what God grants us when we fear him, when we love him, when we trust him. Psalm 51.3, David says, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. All the more reason why he was constantly reminding himself of God's mercy. Micah 7:19 echoes this truth. He will again have compassion on us. He will not or he will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. So in verses 10 through 12, David expounds upon verse 3 where he says he pardons all our iniquities. So let's just look at that. Again, he has not dealt with us according to our sins, verse 10, nor rewarded us according to, his, to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. I believe these are verses that David just clung to, that he repeated over and over again throughout the rest of his life. I mean, many of us have sinned in many different ways, horrible ways. Not many of us are probably murderers like King David. Not many of us had a great fall, perhaps like he did, and yet he had to live with that the rest of his life. 
And I believe that's why he wrote these passionate psalms clinging to these promises of God that God does not hold our sin against us. A couple more verses from King David and other psalms. Psalm 32, 5. I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. And Psalm 38, 18. For I confess my iniquity. I am full of anxiety because of my sin. It was a constant struggle, I believe, in his life for him to say, I'm, in, I'm full of anxiety because of my sin. It's the biggest problem David faced was the problem of sin. It's the biggest problem we'll face in our lives and in the world today. If you turn on the news, you hear about global warming or whatever they call it now, climate change, and still talking about COVID somehow. I don't know. That will ever go away. And racism and all these different things that we talk about. I think Pastor Joe would say it's not a skin problem, it's a sin problem. Underlying everything is the problem of sin. And so David knew that, and we need to realize that as well. And yet David boldly proclaims that his sin will not be held against him. Yet this is before Jesus came on this earth. This was before Jesus died on the cross, and yet he was boldly proclaiming these truths about God's mercy and God's forgiveness, yet he didn't have the full picture. If we see through a glass dimly, how much more did David see through a glass dimly? He had the blood of bulls and goats. We have the blood of Jesus. Scripture says in Hebrews 9, 12, he did not enter, that's Jesus, he did not enter by means of the blood of bulls, and calves and goats, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. And Hebrews eleven thirty nine and 40, right after the Faith Hall of Fame and all the names listed there, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, Moses and David is listed there as well. And it says in Hebrews eleven thirty nine and 40, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised because God had provided, provided something better for us so that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. I've always wondered what that meant, apart from us. Many commentators kind of go back and forth on what exactly does that mean? The Clark commentary states, they all heard, that's these Old Testament saints, David included, they all heard of the promises made to Abraham of a heavenly rest and of the promise of the Messiah, for this was a constant tradition, but they died without having seen this anointed of the Lord. Apart from us in Christ, our faith in him, Psalm 103 is null and void. The Old Testament is null and void. Apart from Christ, the scripture says there is no forgiveness of sins. So the fulfillment of Psalm 103 is found in Jesus Christ. David couldn't proclaim as far as the east is from the west, so he's removed our transgressions from us unless Jesus Christ came to this earth, died on the cross, and rose from the grave. So we should boldly proclaim the truths of God's mercy. We should boldly proclaim 1 Peter 2.24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. 1 Corinthians 15.3. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. 
First John 2.2, 2, he's, he's the propitiation for our sins and not only our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. Romans 8.33 and 34, who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who's the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God interceding for us. All different ways to say our sins are no longer accounted to us. It's been dealt with on the cross. So who can condemn you? Who can bring a charge against you? Rhetorical questions. The answer is nobody because Jesus paid our debts. So we should boldly proclaim Romans 8, 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We should boldly proclaim Romans 5, 1. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We should boldly proclaim Ephesians 1, 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespass according to the riches of his grace. Perhaps you've heard of Martin Luther. He supposedly nailed the 95 theses on the church door in Wittenberg, Germany in 1517. I start to remember that because my daughter Verity was born on 2017, October 31st, the 500-year anniversary, supposedly, of when Luther nailed those 95 theses on the door. We didn't plan that. just so happened that that was the day. And her name means truth, and I've mentioned that before, Verity. And here, Martin Luther was saying, we need to restore the church to the truth. It's kind of interesting how that all worked out. Now, we know he was off in many areas, but there are some interesting and some interesting things that we can learn from Luther that pertain to this message. Luther was an Augustinian monk. He was a Catholic monk. And for years, he struggled with God's mercy. He didn't know if God really loved him. He didn't know if God really had forgiven him of all his sins. So when you read about Martin Luther, and I went to a Lutheran college, and I had a class with a Lutheran professor. I forget his name, but every year he would go back to Germany and visit Luther's house. And it was his doctorate degree was in studying Martin Luther. And since I played baseball and couldn't make the class with all the other students, this teacher would meet with me alone and we'd talk about Martin Luther. And so what did Martin Luther do to try to gain favor with God? What did he do to try to obtain God's mercy? because he didn't believe he had it. If you read through the history books, he would often punish himself. He would not sleep. When it was really cold, he would not use a blanket. He would beat himself. He would even try to atone for his sins by whipping himself in the back over and over and over again. He didn't know God's mercy. He didn't understand it. And he tried to work for it. He tried to earn it. And at one point he said, that's not enough. I need to go on a pilgrimage to Rome. I need to visit the relics. I need to walk up those steps and do this pilgrimage. And so he did that thinking, now I'll finally obtain God's mercy. If I just do enough of these good deeds, then God will forgive my sins. But that didn't do it either. It wasn't until he read in Romans, as I mentioned Romans 5.1, therefore, since we, we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
He needed to truly understand that it was all through faith and faith alone. And we need to understand that as well. Second Corinthians one twenty, for as many as may be the promises of God in him, that's Christ. They are yes. Therefore also through him is our amen to the glory of God through us. Whenever you read a promise of God in the Old Testament, when you read Psalm 103 and these amazing promises about what God's done with our sins, scripture testifies there, yes, and amen in Jesus Christ. But apart from Christ, we know there is no forgiveness of sins. Acts 4.12, Acts 10.43. And if righteousness and forgiveness could be found any other way, if it could be found in the law, scripture says that Christ died needlessly. Galatians 2, 21. So David could boldly proclaim these promises found in Psalm 103, promises of compassion, mercy, and grace to those who fear him. And as I'm talking about mercy today, it's somewhat ironic that my daughter's name is Mercy, just brought up Verity. And my wife pretty much named all my kids. Don't tell anybody. But um, I had a say in mercy. And Last night, she was not sleeping. And so I went in her room thinking, I'll just lay with her for like five minutes. And from like 1 to 3 a.m., for two hours, she was just walking around the room. And I'm like, did you give her caffeine before bed? Like, how is she not tired? And so I spent the night with Mercy, and then I woke up to putting together a message on Mercy. So it's kind of interesting how that worked out. But don't know why I threw that in there. But I love the illustrations, we've read the verses here, verses 11 through 13, as high as the heavens are above the earth, as far as the east is from the west, just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. How high are the heavens above the earth? One article I read said 46 billion light years. The article was titled, How High Are the Heavens Above the Earth? And he's I think he was a scientist. He said, 46 billion light years, but guess what? The universe is expanding at the speed of light, so we can't even keep up with it. I thought that was interesting in light of the illustration. How much does God love you and I? How great is his loving kindness towards you and I? It's ever expanding. 46 billion light years and going on and on and on. That's some amazing love. What great mercy And if you can grasp that, then you might say, well, if God loves me that much, why did this happen in my life? Why did God allow that to happen? Why am I suffering so much? Why do I feel this way? Why am I going through this or that? Why so much pain? And there's an answer for that. Isaiah 55, 9. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways. And my thoughts, higher than your thoughts. We need to rest in that. We need to cling to that promise as well. Sometimes we don't understand things. We need to remember that his ways are much higher than our ways. And entrust our lives to the God who loves us. Then in verse 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far he has removed our transgressions from us. How far is the east from the west? Another way to describe eternity. The Clark commentary states, therefore therefore our sins and their decreed punishment are removed to an eternal distance by his mercy. 
It's an eternal distance, his eternal love towards us. And what kind of compassion does a father have on his children or on his son? I was thinking about that the other night. We had a prayer meeting at James' house and Leland wanted to come with me, my son. Now I'm talking about all three of my kids in this message. So Leland came and he's seven years old and I'm like, oh man, I don't know if he's going to be able to sit still while we're praying. And by God's grace, he just sat on my lap and the whole time while we're fellowshipping and praying, he was sitting there and I was able to hold him and we were praying together. And I think James even prayed for Leland at one point. It was a very special time. And as I was holding him, I was just thinking what compassion I have for my son. And I was thinking about if God gives him many years, if Jesus doesn't return by the time he grows up or we're not all in concentration camps, Lord help us. We joke about it, but who knows? Just got to trust the Lord one day at a time. But I thought, you know what, Lord? I don't care where he works. I don't care how much money he makes. All I care about is that he knows you, that he loves you, that he grasps that he grasps your love for him, that he grasps your mercy, and that he would grow up to serve you in any way that he possibly can. And I thought, man, if I have that compassion, that love towards my son, God's using that as a picture of how much he loves us. Another picture we have in scripture is Luke chapter 15, the prodigal son. Luke chapter 15, verses 18 through 22. And I'll just summarize it for you. You know the story. The son runs off. He takes his father's inheritance that the father gives him. He squanders it and gambles it away and prostitutes and all the like. He has no money left over. He sees the pig's food and he just wants some of that, but he can't even get his hands on the pig slop. And then he comes to his senses, the text says, and thinks, why don't I just go back to my father? Why don't I tell him I'm a sinner and I don't even, I'm not even worthy to be your son anymore. Just make me a hired hand. Make me your slave. And then then I'll at least get some bread. Then I'll at least be fed. So he comes to his senses and he goes back not knowing what his father's going to do. I mean, his father may reject him. His father could say, you squandered everything. You drug my name through the mud. You've made our family look foolish. Now leave and don't come back. And the son at that point probably would be understanding because of all that he did. So he goes back and he says, father, I'm not worthy to be called your son. And what does the father do? It says, while he was still a long way off, the, f- the father ran out to the son. He embraced him. He kissed him. He put a robe on him. He put a ring on his hand. Sandals on his feet. Killed the fatted calf. Threw a party for him and said it's a night of rejoicing. If we ever doubt the father's love and compassion and mercy towards us, look at the vivid picture that Luke gives us in the father of the prodigal son. He didn't beat up his son. He didn't ridicule him. He didn't sit there and say, how could you do that? And how could you do this? And how could... He embraced him. He kissed him. He loved him. Why? Because the son was humble. He came to his senses. He was pleading for mercy. And in this vivid picture, it's also a picture for us that if we go to the Lord in humility, if we say, Lord, have mercy upon me, he will in no way cast us away. You can't find one person in scripture that clings to God and his mercy. One person in scripture 
that runs up to Jesus' feet and says, heal me or save me or have mercy upon me. Not one of them does Jesus cast away. So whenever we're doubting, whenever we feel like God doesn't love us, remember the prodigal son. Humble ourselves. May we humble ourselves and return to the Lord and remember that he is ready to forgive. David says in Psalm 86, 5, for you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive and abundant in mercy to all who call upon you. He's ready. He's eager. He's like that father just wanting to run out and show mercy to us. So as I get ready to bring this to a close, it's a beautiful Psalm, Psalm 103 of God's compassion, his loving kindness, his mercy to those who fear him. And that's the catch. You see that in three verses in Psalm 103, verse 11, verse 13, and verse 17. These precious promises of mercy are for those who fear him. Some people want to abuse these promises and say, see, I can live however I want. I can be like the prodigal son and just live in that fashion and that way of life and God will embrace me. And they forget the part where it says he revered his father. He came before him humble, trembling before him. And we need to be the same way before the Lord. So in closing, maybe you say, I fear him, but my faith is weak. Matthew 17, 20 says, truly I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. You say, I believe, but my belief isn't that strong. We'll pray Mark 9, 24. I believe, help my unbelief. Jesus loves that prayer. And lastly, perhaps you say, or might say, I've sinned too greatly. Remember the tax collector in Luke 18? The scripture says he stood some distance away. He couldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven. And he beat his chest and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And the text says that he went away justified, forgiven, declared righteous, while the Pharisee left with his, sti- with his sin still accredited to him. So may we cry out to God for his mercy. May we cling to his mercy and realize that he deserves all blessing, all praise, and all that is within us. May it bless the Lord. Amen.